Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I had to take Finley to the vet recently because we noticed he was limping after a prolonged squirrel chasing session in our backyard, and it turns out he has a slight tear in his doggy equivalent of an ACL, and he's not going to be able to run or play too much for the next couple of months, which is a bummer. The good news is, after that, he should be just fine, and if he gets enough rest, then it shouldn't require any surgery which is definitely good news. But I have to admit, when I heard that surgery was a possibility, mostly I was worried that it would completely bankrupt me and be scary and confusing for Finley. But there was a part of me that was kind of intrigued by the possibility that like in Rookie of the Year, his ligament could heal too tight and make him super good at sports. And then I could finally get that Rookie of the Year Air Bud crossover going. Now, since he doesn't need surgery, I think that's probably off the table, but it did start me thinking about how else we could work Finley into an Air Bud type franchise given his limited athletic capabilities. And what I came up with is this. You know that famous scene in Air Bud where they flip through a rule book and say, there's nothing in here that says a dog can't play basketball? At least I assume that scene's in the movie, because I know about it and I've never seen Air Bud. Or Rookie of the Year, for that matter. Anyway, I guess I can see why they would never actually bother to go in and put something in the rulebook that says a dog can't play basketball. But you know what I bet is in that rulebook? That in order to play on the high school basketball team, you have to attend that high school. They have pretty strict rules for student-athletes, and I bet they also have it in there that he has to maintain a certain level of academic achievement. Now, assuming that there is also nothing in the high school guidelines that says a dog can't attend high school, he's still gonna need a tutor. And that's where Finley comes in. See, Finley may not be basketball smart, but he's book smart. Probably. I mean, I've never actually seen him reading a book, but I'm assuming that's just because he hadn't tried. I'm sure once he does, he'll be great at it. Anyway, Finley has to tutor Air Bud and get him up to speed academically so that he can keep playing on the basketball team. And at first, these two do not get along. Finley thinks that Air Bud is just a dumb jock. And Air Bud thinks that Finley is a total nerd. But after a while, they start to get to know one another. And Finley sees something in Air Bud and helps him realize that there's more to life than just sports. At one point, Air Bud suffers a minor injury, and in order to stay eligible for school, he has to join a different extracurricular activity while he recovers, and so Finley gets him to enroll in the poetry club, and Air Bud realizes that he has kind of an aptitude for it. He eventually recovers from his injury and ends up rejoining the basketball team. And the team's doing great, but the coach starts putting a lot of pressure on Airbud, and Airbud kind of buckles under it and starts doing a lot of pills and partying really hard. And Finley's like, Airbud, I hardly recognize you when you're like this. This isn't you. And Airbud's like, No, this is the real me. I'm just a dumb jock, and that's all I'll ever be. And they have a big falling out. But then, on the day of the big game, Finley is attending a poetry recital across town. 
And who's that on stage giving the first reading? Why, it's Air Bud! And he's reading a poem called My Best Friend, and it's about Finley. And Finley starts crying, even though I gotta say the poem is not very good. And when it's all over, they're both hugging and crying. And then Finney's like, what are you doing here? What about the big game? And Air Bud's like, forget the big game. This is what's really important. I don't want to be a basketball player anymore. I'm going to college to become a podiatrist. And Finley's like, no, sports are important too. And they're a part of who you are. Let's rush across town and go to the big game. Also, podiatry school is super expensive, so if you could get a basketball scholarship, that would be great, and I bet there's going to be some college scouts at the big game. And Air Bud's like, Finley, you're so smart. And Finley's like, yeah, that's why I'm your tutor. And they laugh for a second, but then they have to get going, so they rush across town, and they get to the big game just in time, and Air Bud suits up, and he hits the game-winning shot. And then the credits start, and that one Peter Gabriel song that was in all the movie trailers in the 90s starts playing. Anyway, that's my pitch for Airbud 11, probably Best Buds, K9 to 5. Because also it's a sequel to 9 to 5, and Dabney Coleman's character is the high school coach. Don't worry, he gets his comeuppance. Anyway, that went on a little bit longer than I thought it was going to, so we should probably talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, Let's, uh, do this. The factory owner didn't have time to read his comics, so he ordered that they all be summarized real quick. But his Marxist foreman told the angry industrial list, The workers control the means of producing this synopsis. Synopsis. Defenders, number 81. March, 1980. War in Ogeon. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Herb Trimpey. Inkded by Jack Abel, lettered by Joe Rosen, colored by Ben Sean, and edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup Valkyrie, Hellcat, Nighthawk, The Wasp, Yellow Jacket, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Namor the Submariner, and Aroika. Previously in the Defenders. Doctor Strange learned that there was an evil, unnameable creature, which he calls the Unmentionable One and I call the Underpants Monster, who posed an existential threat to the entire universe. To combat this foe, Steve reassembled the original defensive lineup, and he, Namor, and the Hulk journeyed to the mystical high-fantasy nonsense realm of Tunnel World so that they could confront their unutterable adversary. Unbeknownst to the rest of the OG Defenders, prior to the reunion, an emissary of the Underpants Monster, who looked like a silvery space barbell papa, mucked around in the Hulk's mind and implanted the Underpants Monster's super-secret real name into the bounding behemoth's brain, turning him into a sleeper agent for the enemy. Then, the glob of extraterrestrial goo erased all memory of the encounter from the Hulk's conscious mind before fucking off back to space. Diabolical! Upon arrival on Tunnel World, our heroes were greeted by a stranger with enormous wings growing out of the side of his head, named Aroika, who offered to serve as their guide. At first, the triumvirate of travelers weren't sure if they could trust Aroika, but then the wing-headed weirdo tricked them into falling asleep, Freddy Krueger his way into their brains, and sang a song that delivered a metric shit-ton of exposition into their dreams. So they decided he was alright. 
The summary of the C-minus Silmarillion worth of backstory that Eroica serenaded into the superheroes' subconsciouses was that Eroica was part of a race that was created by a bird-headed jerkwad named Yatitnedian, who worked for the Underpants Monster. Yatitnedian made Eroica's people so that he and his bird-headed buddies could torture and abuse them and exploit their labor. And if that wasn't bad enough, he gave them giant, goofy-looking, non-functional wings growing out of the sides of their heads as a prank. The wingheads were put to work building a huge citadel called Ogion, and were forbidden to speak. But they met some invisible benevolent brain goblins called the Naya, who taught them how to dream sing at each other, and told them about a prophecy that one day one of them would get free, help defeat the underpants monster, and then everything would be great. A little while ago, Eroica escaped from Ogion, and figured that meant that he was probably the dude from the prophecy. So he sought out the defenders and decided to lead them to Ogion, so that they could all beat up the underpants monster and the bird-headed jerks together. Fair enough. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the government decided that Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, was probably guilty of tax evasion, or financial malfeasance, or something, and that they were tired of his bullshit. Hooray! They informed the billionaire duel bird enthusiast that he couldn't do any more superhero stuff until they sorted things out. While Kyle sulked around in his penthouse apartment, Hellcat and Valkyrie teamed up with the Wasp, aka Janet Van Dyne, and Moondragon, aka Madame McEvil, although she's not K as that often enough if you ask me, to do some complicated nonsense in Las Vegas that I'm not going to get into. While our heroes were in Sin City, Moondragon got annoyed and left, and their plane broke. So the Wasp's husband, Hank Pym, aka Yellowjacket, aka Ant-Man, aka Giant-Man, aka Goliath, aka Inspector and Sector, picked them up in the Avengers' spare Quinjet and gave them a ride home. On their way back to New York, they got involved in some more complicated nonsense, involving a baboon-headed baddie named Mandrill, who wanted to use his gender-specific pheromone-based mind-control powers to take over the world. It was creepy, and sucked. After the rest of the gang succumbed to Mandrill's mind-control, Janet called Kyle, who was all too eager to defy government orders, put on his bird suit, and come to the rescue. Mandrill's forces, which included a big-eyeballed grape enthusiast named Peepers, were defeated, but Mandrill himself escaped. Our put-upon protagonist piled into the Quinjet and headed home to New York. Gadzooks! Will Kyle finally have to face the consequences of his actions, despite his wealth? Will Eroica remain the goofiest-looking character in this issue? And does Ed Hannigan sneak in any more references by spelling things backwards? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, amazingly, yes he does. I'm going to say yes, but there's a returning character who at least makes it a contest. And, of course he does. But at least this time it's a cartoon character and not more Ayn Rand bullshit. Hooray! The OG defenders are hanging out under a bridge and trying to figure out a good way to sneak into the Citadel of Ogion. Given their choice of locale, is it possible that threatening to eat a trio of billy goats might be part of their plan? Or selling needle drugs to the lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Thankfully, for both the local goat community and Anthony Kiedis alike, another solution occurs to them. Eroica notices that a pair of traders is approaching in a covered wagon. The Hulk smashes the bridge, and our heroes hide so that they might ambush the wagoneers. The wagon is being driven by an insect-like humanoid who dresses like a fancy cowboy. 
Riding shotgun is a large purple bald person with a bulbous nose named Noog. Unlike the western wear that their companion sports, Noog is dressed in a furry loincloth and matching leg warmers. It is a distinct, if not entirely unfamiliar look. The disparate duo of traders stops at the edge of the destroyed bridge and wonders aloud how they are going to proceed. Then the Hulk jumps out from under a pile of rocks and yells at them. They turn to flee, and Steve uses his magic to float them up in the air. Seems like maybe they could have skipped the step where the Hulk scares the shit out of them for no particular reason, but what do I know? Our heroes demand that their hostages sneak them into Ogion in the back of their wagon, and after a slight hesitation, the involuntarily hovering merchants agree. As they approach the citadel, Noog tells their bug-like buckaroo buddy that they already weren't thrilled about the idea of trading with the bird-headed jerkholes of Ogion before being hijacked, and after today, they definitely weren't ever doing it again. Noog's cowbug compadre readily agrees. Meanwhile, back in New York, Yellowjacket and the Wasp drop Hellcat, Valkyrie, and Nighthawk off at Kyle's penthouse apartment. Hank mentions that he'd normally land on the roof, but the government's been cracking down on superheroes doing stupid, dangerous shit like landing planes on buildings, so he lets them lower themselves to the rooftop on some ropes. Kyle momentarily worries about the idea of the government insisting that superheroes follow the rules, but is still more or less of the opinion that laws are for people who don't have a few extra billion dollars lying around that they can spend on an adamantium chair that the Hulk never sits in. Once they get inside, Val and Patsy make themselves comfortable and start making fun of Kyle's shitty record collection. Hooray! The mockery of Nighthawk's musical taste, or lack thereof, is interrupted by the doorbell ringing. Kyle answers the door and is immediately arrested by the FBI. Hooray! Back in Tunnel World, the OG Defenders have arrived in Ogion. Steve thanks Noog and the Cowbug for the assistance they were bullied into providing, and the manhandled merchants are like, uh, you're welcome, I guess? And beat a hasty retreat. The gang decides to elude detection by the city authorities by taking the wise precaution of hoping nobody notices them. Nobody even tries to find a trench coat and fedora. Steve is still wearing his giant Dracula cape and everything. What the fuck, guys? I mean, when they were traveling through the countryside, Steve was dressed like Gandalf, Hulk dyed himself purple, and Namor let himself get turned into an owl. But now that they're in the depths of the enemy stronghold, they figure they may as well let their respective freak flags fly? I don't know. Maybe it's in Namor's contract that he can only go so many panels without displaying his abs, and the owl disguise used them all up in the last issue. Anyway, the unincognito, outcognito? Prince of Abslantis is like, This place stinks like shit! Hulk agrees, so Eroica starts leading them towards the fancy part of town, both to relieve the olfactory unpleasantness and in hopes that they might catch sight of the bird-headed jerks who run the place and see what they're up to. Turns out, the gang is in luck. Sort of. The good news is, they soon spot a procession of kinda droopy-eyed, robot-faced soldiery guys carrying a prisoner through town and are able to figure out part of what Yititnetian's been up to. The bad news is that what Yititnetian's been up to is capturing the wizard Zahooks. Shush? Shusha? Well, that sucks. 
eagle-brained listeners will remember that, let's go with Shusha, is the wizard who helped the defenders defeat Lunatic with a K a little while ago. He's covered with fur and eyeballs, has either five or six limbs depending on the artist drawing him, and wears a fancy hat that looks like the one the band leader Mouse in Dumbo had. He says Aru a lot, and talks kinda but not quite like Yoda, in a way that is almost equal parts endearing and frustrating, but tilting slightly towards frustrating. He is also super powerful, so the fact that Yitit Nedian and his goons just beat him up, took all his magic stuff, and put him in a cage is a pretty bad sign for everyone who isn't on Team Underpants Monster. As the defenders are processing this information, one of the robot-faced soldiers spots Eroika and is like, Hey, what are you doing in this part of town? All the wing-headed folks were ordered to stay on the west side of town so that we could murder them or something. Eroika is like, um, you see, the thing is... But Namor interrupts him and is like, Fuck that! And starts beating the shit out of all of the soldiers. Hooray! Hulk and Eroika join in, and somewhat reluctantly, Steve does as well. Soon, robot-faced jerks are flying every witch away. A caravan full of wingheads that is being taken to the west side of town to await their fate spots Eroika beating up one of the soldiers. When they see that, they're like, Neat! Just like in the prophecy. Let's all do that too. Soon the city is awash with retribution, as wingheads everywhere start rising up against their oppressors and punching them right in their stupid robot faces. Hooray! Or is it hooray? Because from within his tower, which overlooks all of Ogion, Yatit Nedian watches the uprising with his shitty bird head and gloats to his prisoner Shusha that everything is going according to his shitty bird plan. Bummer. Yatit Nedian orders that the Crusher be deployed. Does he mean Crusher Creole the Absorbing Man? No. The pro-wrestler The Crusher, who used to tag with Dick the Bruiser in the 70s? No. And if Dick the Bruiser really wanted to intimidate people, he should have moved the definite article from the middle of his name to the beginning of it. The Crusher Yitit Nedian is referring to is a giant futuristic super tank, which is arguably more intimidating than the two Crushers I mentioned, but maybe still not quite as intimidating as a guy who called himself the Dick Bruiser would have been. One person who isn't intimidated by this or any other crusher is the Hulk. He strolls right up and is about to bop the giant tank right on its metal snoot. Then, he doesn't. Instead, the green Goliath just freezes in place and starts clutching his head in pain. He goes limp for a minute. You guys, I bet this is because that silvery space barba papa stuffed a word in his brain. As he stands motionless, the tank shoots the Hulk right in the face. Dang. When he sees his buddy get shot, Namor flips out and starts smashing the crap out of the giant tank, reducing it to rubble in a matter of minutes. Hooray! Unfortunately, in the hail of debris that resulted from the abdominally adroit Atlantean's assault, Steve loses sight of the Hulk and is unable to recover his unconscious body. When the dust settles, the Hulk is nowhere to be seen. Although Steve and Namor do not realize it yet, Yitit Nedian and his robot-faced ruffians have taken the Hulk as their prisoner, shackling the Jade Giant to an enormous wooden plus sign inside the bird-headed jerkhole's inner sanctum. In the meantime, 
Eroica has made himself busy and is fomenting revolution amongst his wing-headed brethren, delivering rousing speeches that speak of freedom. He ends his fiery diatribe with the impassioned phrase, DEATH TO TYRANTS, which gets repeated by the crowd as a rallying cry. Nice. I mean, it's not quite as good as Valkyrie's old catchphrase, UP AGAINST THE WALL, MALE CHAUVINIST PIGS! But it's not bad. Namor is like, Yeah, let's help these wingheads smash their oppressors! Imperious Rex! Steve, on the other, shittier hand, is like, I don't know, Namor. We're pretty busy with this whole underpants monster thing. Maybe we could just debate you, Titnetian, in the marketplace of ideas. Fucking Steve. From his tower, Yatitnedian watches the growing uprising against him with surprising elation. He gloats to an imprisoned Shusha that everything is going according to his evil plan. Because of course it is. It turns out that he learned about the prophecy Eroica's people believe in and figured that if it looked like it was starting to come true and then got squashed, it would be even more disheartening for the wingheads than if there was never a prophecy to begin with. He also reveals that he's going to kill Shusha pretty soon and shatter the Org of Amenon, which is like Shusha's favorite magical doodad. Bummer. From his cage, with solemn dignity, Shusha is like, A real dickhead you are! Aru! You said it, Shush. To be continued! And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty okay. How are you? I'm doing okay, more or less. Good. Yeah, we have a rat living in our garage, which I'm not crazy about. Oh, no. Yeah, we left the, uh, the back door to the garage open while doing some gardening one day, and then the next day it ate some candy. That was in the garage. I'm not crazy about that. Oh man, it got into your candy stash? Yeah, the loss of candy isn't the important thing. It's more the fact that we now have a rat in the one place on our property where Finley is afraid to go for some reason. Oh really? He doesn't like the garage? We shouldn't have watched those horror movies together. I think that's the issue, but uh, what can you do? How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm glad it's the weekend. I'm glad we get to hang out and... Talk about this goofy comic book. All right, well, shit, let's just get into it, shall we? Sure. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? First of all, the cover is pretty compelling and also not super related to what happens in the comic. There's a scene kind of like that in it. Yep, there's one that's kind of like it. Also, on the first page, I, for some reason, can't read... Ogeon, which is the citadel in Tunnel World, uh, where the bad guy is, without reading it as Oregon. Yeah, I had the same thing. So when it first pops up, war in Oregon, I was like, oh no! Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's even like a guy with a wagon going across the bridge, and so it had that like, you know, kind of covered wagon feel to it. <laughs> I know, I really wanted the issue to be called War on the Ogeon Trail, or something like that, you know? <laughs> you die of dysentery, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that stuff was pretty fun. Overall, I'm having a tough time getting invested in this Tunnel World story. 
even know your favorite three-armed feather hat-wearing magical person shows up again? Yeah, I mean, I was happy to see Shusha, although not under these circumstances. But I don't know, man. The high fantasy world, it just has such a high buy-in, you know? I feel like fantasy is kind of like math. Hmm. In that, like, with algebra, I can get it. It's like, there's some numbers, and there's some letters, and some of the numbers are switched out for letters, so I can figure out what the letters are supposed to be. But once you get past a certain point, it starts being all letters, and then I just don't know what the fuck is going on. And it's kind of the same way with fantasy, where it's like, okay, you're switching out one or two words or concepts for these fantasy things i can get that but when it all becomes made up words then i'm just like i don't even fucking know anymore and i'm not invested anymore yeah i'm getting tired of reading everything backwards yeah there was one fun backwards writing bit in here i thought but yeah i i yeah i'm tired of the yitit nidian and ogion i mean that sounds weird, because I do like reading fantasy novels, and like there's a lot of that that goes on in comic books in general, but you're eased into it over a period of time, where with this, it's just like, you are thrust into all of this backstory with all of these new concepts and like weird, kooky, made-up words all at once, and where normally I think you would even have a point-of-view characters, like the heroes, they are from Earth, not Tunnel World, so they could be being introduced to these new concepts and being reminded of them constantly and having these new ideas be reinforced. But you don't get that because in like the second issue, there was an enormous exposition dumped directly into their subconscious. So now they just understand it and it makes sense to them where they are. And it just didn't really work for me. Yeah, I feel bad in that it seems like, I don't know, the last four or five episodes when you've asked me what I thought of a comic book, I've said, oh, it was okay, but it seemed like kind of filler until we get to the next thing. Yeah. But again, this didn't seem to move the plot along too far. I mean, we had the Defenders, part of the, the all the boys, except for Nighthawk, uh, make it into the Citadel. Yeah, the original Defenders. But that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. And I think also part of why it's difficult to get totally immersed into the world and lose yourself in it is because it keeps cutting back to within the issue the b plot which is completely unconnected to it which is nighthawk and valkyrie and hellcat doing stuff it's only for a couple of pages in this but during that i was like oh i would rather stick around with this story a little bit and yeah, the way it's broken up, just it, it's weird and the pacing doesn't really work for me. I will say I realized that we are on issue 81, which means one of my favorite comic books ever is coming up in about seven or eight issues. So I'm looking forward to that. Really? Uh-huh. This is kind of, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here, but it's we're in kind of a bleak spot in terms of the storytelling in these issues. I remembered not liking the Ed Hannigan stuff that much when I read it the first time. And I've been trying to give it a fair shake this time around, and I'm still not liking it, frankly. But uh, there's some mm. good stuff coming up, so I'm looking forward to that. So how close are we to the end of the tunnel? <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> Tunnel World, there's, what, 200 and 
50 in this 1970s run that we're reading? No, 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 no. There's, I think, 152 uh, Defenders issues. Oh, okay. Wow. So we're more than halfway through. Wow. And there is definitely some good stuff coming up once we get out of Tunnel World. And heck, I don't remember the end of Tunnel World. Maybe it's great and totally redeems the arc. Who can say for sure? That said, there were some fun things in this issue. It was just overall the story isn't really clicking for me, and it's still feeling like a bit of a slog, I gotta say. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what, A, the reveal of the unnameable is like, and B, what his name is. I bet it's a it's a cop-out for the name where we don't get to learn what it actually is. Like, oh, it's incomprehensible to your human tongue, but here's a picture of the Hulk saying it, and it's bleeped out or something. Well, we're going to get a Steve Strange. Well, I could tell you, but you wouldn't understand. <laughs> yes, your minds couldn't comprehend it. Yeah, I mean, heck, like I said, I really don't remember, so it's possible that his name is just like... I don't know, Alan or something. <laughs> Maybe. In Tunnel World, nobody is named Alan except this guy. Yeah. So, speaking of the art, I noticed I, there was a name on here that I didn't recognize from before. Maybe I just missed it. But have we seen Jack Abel's uh, working with Herb Trimpy before? I think we have. Not a ton, but I think he's popped up once or twice before. He's a inker who's been around for a very long time i think he started off in the golden age but he does a fine job uh what what did you think of the art i thought it was pretty good i i particularly liked the details around the uh cart driving saucepan vendors (laughs) that the defenders used to sneak into ogion yeah you have the cow bug i'm just gonna call him because he's like a cowboy but also a bug I wrote Cowboy Bug, so... Yeah, and then his sidekick, Noog, who is the one example of new backwards talk we get in this issue, because Noog backwards is Goon, and the character Noog very much appears to be one of the goons from the Popeye cartoons. I thought I recognized that, Schnoz. Yeah, I did a little bit of research about like the inception of goons and it started off with there was one of these like they're big ogre looking creatures and one of them the sea hag had been using as a guard and Popeye was fighting them and then he finds out that the goon is named Alice and is only fighting because she is protecting her baby and Then he ended up freeing her. She had been pressed into service with the Sea Hag. She ended up becoming Olive Oil's friend. There was a whole thing with that. But my favorite part about it was they got a lot of parents writing in saying that the appearance of Alice the Goon was too scary for them. So they they kept her appearance pretty much the same, but gave her a hat that had a flower in it. Well, works every time. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. There's a fun variation on the uh, trench coat and fedora. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you get the the noog in this, which I was like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of fun. Uh, and I did like those two characters. We unfortunately don't get to see a ton of them. But yeah, you get them. There were some fun bits. Uh, we see that Kyle finally gets arrested. So maybe it'll stick this time. We'll see. Mm-hmm. 
Val and uh, Patsy do some bonding. Yes, over their mutual disdain for Kyle's record collection. And uh, talking about Patsy's mom. What do we learn about Patsy's mom in this issue? Oh, we don't. But she, basically, they, they, they foreshadow a long conversation where Patsy's saying, and we have a lot of talking to do if we're going to stick together. Did I ever tell you about my mother? Dot, dot, dot. Hmm. Yeah. That actually does foreshadow a really fun twist that is coming up in The Defenders, which I'm looking forward to getting to. The Patsy's Mom saga is actually pretty interesting. Oh, wow. I also do really like that Valkyrie's like, hey, let's put on some records. Let's see what Kyle's got. And it's the thousands of strings play the Beatles' greatest hits, which I looked into, and that's a reference to a group called the 101 String Orchestra which would do easy listening covers of popular music. Oh my god, that is totally what Kyle would have. I know, it's so perfect. It's like, as much shit as I give Ed Hannigan, that is like, he has nailed that character. That is exactly the music that Kyle would be playing on his hi-fi, easy listening Beatles. Wow, your search skills are superior to mine. I searched for literally that that string and didn't find anything. I was like, oh, Hannigan just made it up. But <laughs> hundred strings, okay. Which, I mean, it's called the 101 Strings Orchestra, but I think they have like 124 instruments, which probably puts them close to a thousand strings. I don't know how many strings are on an instrument. Probably about a dozen, I would say. Depends on the instrument, because my search did lead me to find a record called The Harp of a Thousand Strings. Oh, man. I wonder if that harpist has a rivalry with the Thousand Strings Orchestra. See, like, who can cover Blackbird better? Mm. Or Here Comes the Sun? I would be interested to hear that on a Thousand String Harp. (laughs) I think that's just hyperbole. I don't really think that that harp has that many strings, but... That seems excessive, I gotta say. It's too many. Yeah. I mean, how many strings did the Voodoo Glow Skulls use in their cover of Here Comes the Sun? Like, seven? Maybe eight tops? The uh, security guards, I mean, we're gonna get to this, I guess, in fashion talk, but their eyes make them look really dopey. Did you notice that? I don't think I did. Overall, I was just kind of struck by the fact that they looked like the, uh, gosh, it's come up before, but I forget what they're called. The the robot hench people that Cobra brought in when they decided they wanted to be okay with beating up robots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their eyes do look dopey. They have like robot-shaped eyes, kind of, but the pupil setting makes them look, I don't know, sleepy and kind of high. And a little sad. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I gotta go do security. I just wanted to take a nap and watch Zardoz again. Yeah, I started reading all the dialogue from them, like, Identify yourself, creature, wait. These are no spawn of Ogeon. Company to the attack. <laughs> I think that sounds like a good call. Yeah. We gave some shit before, at least I did, to Yatit Nedian. I 
keep trying to come up with a fun nickname for him, but I, I keep landing on Titty, and I don't think that's a good nickname. <laughs> no. So uh, let's. I guess we'll stick with you, Titnidian. I gave some shit for him having one of those. I appear to be failing. Excellent. This is exactly as I planned it. Overly complicated villainous schemes. And mm-hmm. that is still largely the case. But there is a little bit more of an attempt to flesh that out. And I appreciated that. And we see that his ultimate goal is to just crush the spirit of these wingheads that he created. He's found out that they have this prophecy, so he figures that if it looks like their prophecy is about to come true, and then it just gets totally squashed, then that'll take any fight out of them. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, I mean, it's definitely super shitty, but it actually makes sense in a way that often these Rube Goldberg Machiavellian schemes don't, and I kind of appreciated that. Not only from a strategy standpoint, but it also underscores, uh, you know, underlying cruelty that is supposed to go with this character and the unnameable one. Mm-hmm. So first of all, they create this race with wings that can't fly just to fuck with them. Mm-hmm. And they're coming out of the side of their heads, which makes them look goofy. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then he's like, and I'm going to give him this prophecy, dangle it in front of them and then snatch it away at the last minute. Not only for victory, but also to be a jerk. Now, I don't think he gave them the prophecy. I think he just found out about it. Either way, though, that yeah. idea of, you know, letting somebody almost achieve victory and then just being like, nope. It's like when you drop a piece of pizza and it lands like cheese side down in the dirt. Mm-hmm. I haven't done this, but I've, I, I saw it happen, and, I, and <laughs> the look of disappointment on that person's face that they really wanted that slice of pizza like just having something snatched away from you by fate at the last moment is is cruel yeah there was a time a while ago when i was hanging out with my niece and nephew and my nephew dropped his ice cream cone on, or the ice cream fell off the top of his cone it fell on the ground and he just immediately burst into tears and i was oh, yeah. like yeah i fucking get that man Yeah, it is kind of one of those, only possibly even crueler, you know, because he's subjugating and abusing and torturing an entire species of sentient beings and condemning them to an eternity of servitude, which is arguably worse than expecting pizza and not getting it. Yeah, but it's still (laughs) still a good metaphor. Right, right. Yeah, we get that. And as you said, he has taken... Shush, Zahooks, Shusha, the knuckle-headed, six-limbed, although in this it looks like he's only got five of them, hairy wizard monster that the Defenders encountered. Gosh, I honestly think it's about a year ago's worth of comic book stories at this point. Uh, This story has been going on a very long time, but when they were having the whole debacle where they chopped down Lunatic. Mm Mm-hmm. Which does kind of raise the question, what happened to Lunatic with a K? He had been staying in Shush's dungeon as an unwilling guest. What do you think happened to him? Do you think he's still in there? First of all, I like that you use the word unwilling guest for prisoner. (laughs) That's that's pretty good. Trying to be diplomatic here. Uh Uh-huh. 
So did he? I forget. Gosh, there's so many things have happened. Did lunatic with a K merge back into one lunatic, or is he still a bunch of lunatics? Yeah, he got smush Voltroned into just one dude. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm. He's still sitting in the basement. I bet. Yeah. Just like wondering, like guys, guys. Mm-hmm. Nobody's here to annoy with all of my pop culture references. Oh, this truly is torture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nice to see Shush, as I said, although would that it were not under these circumstances. Uh, it was, again, kind of fun, but mostly frustrating to try to read his dialogue because there are not consistent syntax rules to it. Like, it's three quarters of the way to Yoda, but without the consistency that you need to figure out the speech pattern. Yeah, I was frankly relieved he didn't get a lot of speaking parts <laughs> in this issue. Yeah, I like that we do get a couple of arus out of him still, because that's always nice. But yeah, let's take a look at his dialogue. He's talking to Yatitnidian, whose nickname is definitely not Titty, although I almost just called him that. He says, Certain you are that you not are just the prophecy's means of true becoming? Aru? Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And Aru, unable the foul name to hear, my spells make me. Like I said, it's so close to being Yoda, but you just need the consistency from it. And this comic came out just a few months before Empire Strikes Back. So if it had just been a little bit later, They could have just yoinked Yoda talk, but no. Mm. No such luck. There was also a piece of inconsistency that was going on here, where when they did the Inception Freddy Kruegering of backstory into our heroes' brains, part of Eroica's Silmarillion that he dumped into them was that the winghead people are forbidden from ever speaking, and that's why they figured out how to do their Freddy Kruegering and dream communicating. But in this, we see the guards are questioning Eroica, and he's answering them, and the wingheads are all talking to each other. It just did they just forget about that, or is there some workaround for it? Yeah, I wasn't able to detect that, and it was really brought home on, I think it's page 17, when the winghead with the really crooked Van Dyke beard shouts into the into the viewer, Look, my brother and a slave wielding a weapon! Mm-hmm. And I was like, first of all, man, you maybe didn't have a mirror when you were shaving, so okay. <laughs> but you're not supposed to be able to talk. Yeah, I mean, I guess... The idea is that they're able to talk, but that they're forbidden to, because it's another way for Yatitnedian to be a dick to them. So, I mean, I guess you could explain that part away where they are about to openly rebel anyway, but it seems like, I don't know, their voices would have maybe atrophied a little bit at that point, or something. But when the guard is just like, hey, you, what are you doing here? Like, I know they're they're dumb and goofy, but like... They're not that dumb, are they? Like, that they'd just be like, Hey, you, guy who is never allowed to talk, what do you have to say? Maybe it's like a cop trick where they're just like, Oh, looks like your taillight's out. You know, why aren't you answering me? And then they answer him and then they get to arrest him. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. But I think it was mostly just a matter of, oh, I don't remember that I said that and it's inconvenient. So never mind. Yep. I'm guessing it's the latter. Mm hmm. There was one interesting turn of phrase that I, I hadn't heard before from Wasp, I think, on pa- around page six, mm-hmm. where she refers to a group of superheroes as an action team. I like that. Yeah. It reminds me of action slacks. It seems like a very 70s thing to call a superhero team, and I like it. Nice job, the Wasp. Yeah. You gotta wear your action slacks. I mean, I'm pretty sure all those superhero outfits are nice and stretchy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unstable molecules, man. They gotta be. That's why their outfits are stretchy? Yeah, well, uh, canonically, that is why the Fantastic Four can have their costumes stay, despite one of them turning into fire all the time. Uh, One of them turns invisible with them, and one of them stretches with them. They are made out of unstable molecules. Oh, man. We should make a line of stretchy clothing, when that could be the brand name. Yeah, for that that crossover of comic book jocks. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a good plan. Big audience. So pretty early on in the book, there's a scene where Steve is delivering some exposition and Namor's listening and the Hulk is getting distracted because he's got something on his shoulder. What do you think that thing that the Hulk is picking off his shoulder is? It's like a big bug. I liked that he just seemed completely like he wasn't paying attention to what Steve and Namor are talking about. And he's like, what the fuck's up with this bug? I don't know if it's supposed to be like, foreshadowing there being something up with his brain like maybe that bug is connected to it it looks a little bit like the earwig that gets jammed into Chekhov's oh, brain in the no, second no, star no no no, no I don't like that <laughs> I have never liked that <laughs> it is very disturbing Ugh. I mean it does look kind of like that you got to admit I don't want to talk about it man okay okay I'm sorry it's okay I don't like ear stuff <laughs> just freaks me out do you remember that billboard that was on burnside forever where it's for an ear doctor and it just shows him crawling into a giant ear and you could just see his like the sec the lower half of his body that poking the- out as he's climbing in on a stepladder that is the weirdest shit mm-hmm. you, you remember that right I thought maybe that was not a thing, but yes, I I do remember it. It's one of those things where you're like, no, they wouldn't have done that. That's just my brain. It seems like an ad parody, but it's not. I remember every time I saw that, I would would think to myself, man, it's a good thing that guy's not a proctologist. (laughs) And on that note, are you ready to move on to the minutia? Let's crawl right in. Oh! We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thanks. So, Cory, what do you feel like starting off with? Let's talk about clothes. All right, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most worthy of note? We had a few, or I had a few. I'm sure you had some. Also, we already talked a little bit about the dopey robot eyes, but when we start with those guys, those the guards or the soldiers, they Mm -hmm. also have little purple outfits, kind of like a top with a 
sort of like maybe I don't know Roman skirt kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, weird like riding helmet robot face. Yeah, I think that's an accurate description. They've got some nice shoulder pads going on in their tunics, but they do seem to have roboticized faces, but not robot bodies. So maybe they're some kind of cyborg. Um, it's not a bad look, except for, as you have pointed out, the eyes are really dopey looking. They're full of sad, sleepy menace. Or not even menace, but just like malaise. <laughs> just like, I guess I'm a bad guy. <laughs> I'm so bored. I don't know. There's something about the triangliness of them that makes them look at least a little bit menacey. Hmm. And, uh, see, other than that, they've got some nice, tight-fitting boots that are the same color. Mm-hmm. That's about all I got for those guys. Yeah. They're not bad outfits for robot-slash-stormtrooper dudes in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Going back to the cowbug, I like his outfit a lot. He's got that kind of fancy cowboy shirt that looks almost like a chef jacket. Yep. You know, where all the buttons are on one side. He's got a nice little cowboy hat. Got two extra arms, which look pretty good in that cowboy shirt. And of course, because he's a cowbug, he's got that little neckerchief on. And uh, it's just a really solid look for him. I like it a lot. He's also got those really long kind of riding gloves that are blue in contrast to his red shirt. And it looks in one panel like they've got little white stars on the kind of cuff of the glove. Very fancy. Yeah, it's very Tom Mix looking. And uh, yeah, he's got some also like uh, calf high bright yellow boots. So good for him, man. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Goldblum in the Buckaroo Banzai movie. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if maybe in some way he was the inspiration for that and the movie The Fly. (laughs) Oh, wow. I bet like if you look then somewhere in his apartment, Jeff Goldblum has like a framed copy of this comic book. It just really (laughs) spoke to him. And he's just like, dress like a fancy cowboy, turn into a bug. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it in the same movie, but I got a couple of ideas from this. Nice. Wow. We have so much to thank this issue for. (laughs) Did you have any other fashion you wanted to talk about? I did. I really liked the feds on page 10 who come to arrest Kyle, but especially the third dude that's like in the background. He's got these enormous sunglasses on. And is just wearing, like, a smirk <laughs> on his face. And I don't know why his face just cracks me up. The other two dudes look super serious. They're like, yeah, Mr. Richmond, we're going to arrest you. And the other guy's just like, eh. I bet he wasn't asked to come along. I bet the other two were about to leave to do it. And he's like, oh, shit, you're arresting Kyle Richmond? Can I, can I come? Yeah, I want to see this. I promise I won't say anything. They're like, no, you know you're not supposed to. He's like, I'll wear sunglasses. They won't know it's me. I just, I gotta see this. Yeah, I think that's that's probably it. Yeah. His outfit's not really remarkable other than just his sunglasses and his smirk. Well, it's like the song says, you're never fully dressed without a smirk. Well, who did you have as the best defender, and who did you have as the worst offender in this issue? Well, since... 
We didn't hear too much from the non-Tunnel World team. I stuck with the folks in Tunnel World for these two mm. categories. For best, I gave it to Namor because he beats up a giant magic tank. Yeah, I had Namor. Takes action, beats up a super tank. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And for worst, I went with Steve because I think he made a bad tactical choice when he magically begones the bad guys because that let Yatitnidian and um, the unnameable one ostensibly know about their presence. Yeah, it's not a great move. And then he goes back to equivocating towards the end where, I don't know, man, like there's a like a group of oppressed people that are fighting for their freedom. And Steve's like, mm, I don't know. I'm really, I've got other things I'm doing. I mean, yes, they've captured my best friend, but he'll probably be fine. I, I guess not his best friend. That'd probably be Wong. But, you know, he's pretty tight with the Hulk, certainly. Mm-hmm. He's his comrade in arms. And he's just like, should I do anything? I don't know, Namor. It just seems really dickish. I, however, had Nighthawk as my worst offender. Hmm. For a couple of reasons. First of all, the easy listening. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> but second of all, and maybe most importantly, he is a billionaire who expresses his desire to deregulate the stock market. Which, I mean... Dick move. It's when he is being arrested, the feds show up at his apartment, and he says, uh, oh, what is it this time? SEC, IRS, or some other alphabetical waste of the taxpayer's money? Dude, you can dislike how the SEC does their job, but regulating the stock market is not a waste of taxpayer's money. And the IRS is how you have taxes, so fuck you, Kyle. Hmm. Fair. Yeah. So that's why I had Kyle as the worst. And uh, yeah, like you, Namor smashed some stuff real real good. He had some good speeches. He was a lot of fun in this issue. I had Namor as the best. Cool. What were your favorite sound effects? This issue was pretty good for sound effects. Both of my favorites in this one, though, came from Namor. The first one is when he has finally had enough of Steve's let's sneak in quietly business and decides to spring into action, beating up a bunch of those uh, purple-suited, robot-faced bad guys. Mm -hmm. He punches like 10 people all at once, and it makes the noise, Bawak Kroom, on page 15. That was pretty good. What other sound effects that Namor was making were you into? My other favorite one, which I think is maybe page 23, is when he... Double fist swan dive super punches into the top of that giant magical tank, and it makes the noise crump. Yeah, I liked that too. He's a real Tommy the Hip Hop clown there. Yeah, re real crump. So both of your favorites were by Namor. Both of my favorites were by Namor's main opponent in this issue, the super tank, because mm. we have... The super tank firing a cannon at a already taken out of it by the secret word implanted in his brain, the Hulk. And when that cannon fires, it makes the noise, Pwavoom, which is a pretty good noise. Mm -hmm. But not quite as good as a few pages later, 
when a different cannon shoots Namor and it makes the noise Badoom Doom. Yep. Right in the boom doom. No, Badoom Doom. Oh yeah, that's a D. Badoom Doom. Like Boom Doom would be fun, but Badoom Doom. That's like, oh shit. Like it's like that tank's beatboxing at him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's messing him up. Shot mm-hmm. him right in the butt too. Yep, right in the Badoom Doom. Ouch. Yeah, so those were my favorites. What was your pie not made out of steel for this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? Uh, We talked about it already with how it illustrated what a jerk Yatinidian was, but uh, his whole spiel, I think on page 16, where he says, Ha, the fools, especially the slave who calls himself Arawika, don't they know that the sort of prophecy is a two-edged one? What better way to thwart a long-held dream than to make it appear to be coming true? Then snatch it away before their astonished eyes. Yeah, what a dickhole. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty well-crafted little speech for, for a jerkhole to have. Yep. The first one that really struck me was some of the opening words of the issue. And I don't think they're necessarily all that well done, but the fact that we have taken to calling the unmentionable one, the underpants monster, Mm -hmm. really made this read in a different way to me. As the dark stain of the unnameable's (laughs) foul influence (laughs) spreads even more rapidly across the unique otherworld dimensional tunnel world, yep, yep, the underpants monster's dark stain is going to spread right out of tunnel world. (laughs) Yeah, what more is there to say? So I definitely enjoyed that. I also really did like the reaction that Patsy had to Kyle's record collection, which was, ugh, let's just go listen to the radio instead. Mm -hmm. But I also liked, I don't even know if I liked it, but I was definitely struck by a piece of phrasing that Namor had, where he said, nothing is absolutely immune from attack, especially from we defenders. It really does highlight what an inappropriate name The Defenders is. Oh, yeah. That sure does. Nothing is immune from attack, especially from us Defenders. We're the best at attacking. That's why we're called The Defenders. Okay. I guess because Righteous Offenders didn't add too many (laughs) syllables or something. Yeah, but I think that would definitely be more appropriate for a team led by Steve and Kyle. Yep. (laughs) Well, Corey, it is time for me to ask you a difficult question. Mm. Behold or be gone. In this issue, we were reminded by the Noog, or possibly the Nuge, although I think Ted Nugent might have copyrighted that. Which way were you reading it? I read it the first way because I don't like Ted Nugent very much. Yeah, no, totally. Fuck that guy. Yeah. So yeah, by the Noog, we were Reminded, or at least I was, of the Popeye-verse. So, here's the question I'm putting to you, Corey. Mm-hmm. You are given the opportunity to be magically transported into a different universe. The Popeye-universe. Behold or be gone. Living in the Popeye-verse. Mm. It's a magical land filled with strength-inducing spinach and... 
deferred hamburger payment? What do you say? I'd say I'll gladly pay you Tuesday because that sounds better than where we are right now. <laughs> Plus, I may get to meet one of Popeye's cousins, Poopeye. Okay, that is not his cousin. It is his nephew. I'm sorry, <laughs> his nephew. Yes, he has four nephews. Pipeye, Popeye with a U, Papeye, and Poopeye. <laughs> uh, so unfortunate. Yeah, it may even be Peepeye instead of Papeye. I'm not sure. Yeah, just when I thought I couldn't giggle anymore at Poop Deck Pappy, here comes Poopy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I am also giving it a behold. I think there would be drawbacks to it. I think a Jeep would be a more difficult pet to care for than Finley. A teleporting dog, essentially, who has various magical abilities may sound good on paper, but I think would end up just being a real headache. Not crazy about the idea that somebody might just drop off a baby at my doorstep, and then I'd have to raise it. But ultimately, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. If you start a sentence with, you can be transported into a different universe, I'm kind of not even waiting for you to finish the, the rest of that <laughs> sentence. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely taking that. And then the bonus is it's a magical world where a perpetually unemployed sailor has the opportunity to become an astronaut and several small business owners. Like, sign me up. Pretty good. And also that baby on the doorstep thing could really happen anywhere. Good point. I don't want to have to fight a sea hag, I'll tell you that much. Oh, who does? Hmm. Every issue of a Defender's comic book has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Yeah, this one was really tricky for me this time around, and so it's a little bit of a stretch. But I actually went with Patsy hmm. for not wanting to kind of hang out and party a little bit more. Like, I get it that Kyle's record collection probably sucks, and she does suggest to put on the radio, but instead she just wants to hang out and talk about her mom. Yeah. I don't know. I thought maybe maybe she'd want to listen to some records and try making a pot of coffee again or <laughs> something. But uh, that's just, yeah, it seemed uh, a little bit out of character for her. Hmm. See, I looked at it more as just fleshing her character out a little bit. Like, yeah, she loves to party, but she's just had a rough time where she, you know, contributed to an 11-year-old eviling himself to death. And, uh, you know, then was mind-controlled by an ill-conceived character who looked like a mandrill baboon, and, you know, she's had a rough day. Maybe she just wants to chill out and bond with her pal Valkyrie. Mm -hmm. I also, though, did have a difficult time coming up with a suck of this issue, and eventually I ended up landing on Hank Pym. Because he shows a lot of discretion, which isn't necessarily all the way out of character for Hank Pym, but it is out of character for him as Yellow Jacket. Like, Yellow Jacket was a character that he specifically concocted for himself to be more brash and bold and outgoing, as opposed to his previous character Ant-Man and his general personality as Hank Pym. Like, he wanted to be more of a swashbuckling adventurer, and as such, it's weird seeing him be like, 
well, they've really been cracking down on superheroes, so we're just going to have to hover above your house and uh, let you guys swing down from a rope to get into it. You know how it is. Like, the fact that he is that into following the rules mm. mm-hmm. seems out of character for the yellow jacket persona that Hank Pym has adopted. Yeah, it's a good choice. It was a difficult one in this issue because I feel like Hannigan is getting a better handle on the characters. And like, like we talked about with Nighthawk, like he gets a couple of touches for Nighthawk that I'm like, I hated that he was like a libertarian jerk hole and was just like, they should dissolve the SEC and the IRS. They're a waste of money. But that is absolutely what Kyle would say. And yeah, that touch about his record collection, really spot on. Mm hmm. So, Corey, what was your favorite panel? I had a couple choices. I would say probably my my backup is on page 18, and that's the unveiling of the Crusher, this giant, magical, shiny tank with a bunch of guns all over it. Mm-hmm. It just dwarfs the people, and it kind of reminded me of the, like, the Soylent Green-like killdozer thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally see that. To me, it reminded me of the airship at the end of the first world of Super Mario Brothers 3, but that might be kind of specific. (laughs) I don't like playing those games with you. (laughs) Too competitive. Yeah, I do tend to get kind of competitive about video games, but I like to think I make up for it by not being very good at them. But yeah, that that was impressive. It was well rendered. It gave a good sense of like awe and scale. And there's this kind of yellow clouds of smoke and dust billowing out. And it just looks very menacing. And everybody's like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. But my favorite one was a little bit more subtle than that. And it's on page 29, maybe. And it's when the wing-headed folks are getting all like geared up to do their revolution. And... Arawika's getting this death to tyrants shout going on and it's like this very rousing moment and then the view cuts to Steve and Namor standing in the background and Namor's like almost got like his hand on one cheek and just being like ugh he says I can't help but feeling that this heady optimism strains the bounds of practicality somewhat where he's like oh man these guys are gonna get crushed Yeah, it is a weird moment. Like, yeah, you do see this, like, rabble-rousing speech that is very uplifting that Arrowika's giving. And then you cut to Namor and Steve, who are just kind of Statler and Waldorfing the performance. (laughs) They are. They're, like, in the background, just like, oh, that's not going to fucking work. (laughs) Revolution? They're going to need a plus-size guillotine to get those wings through it. Um, I actually liked that panel a lot, too, and my favorite is one that we have talked about before. It's the one in which the Hulk is picking definitely not an earwig from Star Trek 2 off of his shoulder (laughs) and looking at it. It is on page two, and it's just, it's a nicely drawn picture, but... It's one of those that makes me wonder about the process in this comic book, because what the Hulk's doing is so unrelated to what the other characters are doing. It makes me kind of wonder if that bug was added at the last minute. It makes me wonder if that thought bubble that just has a question mark in it that the Hulk is thinking as he looks at this bug 
was originally part of the script or if that was just added in reaction to seeing like, oh, yeah, Namor is talking to Steve and then the Hulk's just kind of looking off in one direction as Arawika starts running away from them. Like, what's the Hulk thinking in there? It's a weird, fun panel. It is. I think he's sulking because he just got yelled at by Steve to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and then Steve and Namor are like, whisper, whisper, whisper. Hulk's just like, no. I'm just going to look at this weird bug on my shoulder. <laughs> I just really like, too, that it is a thought bubble with just a question mark in it, which I feel like if people actually had thought bubbles, that would be the one that I would have more often than not. Mm. Like, if there was a visual representation of what was going on in my brain, as likely as not, it would just be a question mark. Yeah, that's a good call. Maybe an intero bang. Hmm. I do have one of those tattooed on my leg, and I thought I had made it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a name and everything. I know, but 17-year-old me didn't know. Mm -hmm. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? Yeah, so in this issue, the Hulk's rules are just as people... Sometimes say, like, you know, treat your body like a temple. I think that he's saying the same thing applies to your your mind. You know, just mm. be careful what you let people put in there. Like bugs? For, for example. <laughs> or the name of the unmentionable oh. underpants monster screws him up pretty bad. So, you know, just... Be cognizant of that, what you're taking in and what you're allowing to uh, to come into your inner space, as it were. So, yeah, beware of, I mean, you brought up inner space, so definitely don't let Dennis Quaid in there. Again with the Quaids, man. <laughs> what, what, what happened? You brought up inner space. So, yeah, don't let him get injected into there. Don't let him uh, invade your dreamscape to fight a snake monster. If you encounter a silvery space barba papa or ricardo montoban uh just head the other direction especially ricardo montoban with a mullet like that's the worst <laughs> montoban we got bad news i think that's a very good hoax rules i had my hoax rule being a fairly simple one that is timely both for this comic and current society and that would be something that eroica brings up which is death to tyrants just death to tyrants. That's the Hulk's rule. Fair enough. Just let that one hang there for a minute and resonate. Yep. Death to tyrants. Well, I have uh, just one more thing that I must ask you, Corey, and mm. that is, in the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, March. What Wong doings was Wong doing? Mm. So March found uh, Wong a little bit concerned that one of his, his favorite rituals was going to come to an end. And that was because Steve decided that uh, they had been watching entirely too much television after dinner. <laughs> Oh. And was like, from now on, Wong, we will read only and there shall be no more programs. And Wong was like, oh, man, that's a bummer. I really, you know, kind of miss hanging out and watching TV after dinner with Steve. So he did some research and 
Later on, around the middle of the month, he made his way to a local Sears store and picked up a telecaption adapter for $249.95. Whoa. Which was a lot of money back then. Yeah. And used that to hook up to the TV to take advantage of the very first instance of closed captioning, which happened on March 16th on the program Disney's Wonderful World on NBC at 7 p.m. And they sat down and they watched uh, a showing of the 1963 film Son of Flubber with closed captioning, which Steve accepted because there was words. (laughs) Ah, and, you know, it also drives home that movie does really what the subtext to a lot of live-action Disney films was, which is it is perfectly acceptable to cheat at college sports for a good cause. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's yeah. both Flubber movies and Blackbeard's Ghost. The computer wore tennis shoes, although I guess that's a college quiz game, but still. And a few others. Like, really, just as long as it's for a good cause, man, you cheat at those college sports and bet on them. Mm-hmm. It's good to know that that's part of what Wong was doing, but it wasn't all of it, although the rest of what he was doing does also relate to television. Hmm. I think perhaps rekindling their love of shared television viewing, Wong decided that he would really like to get cable for the Sanctum, but he didn't want to pay for it. So he had a flash. He was like, well, let's see. I mean, I don't want to... I feel like people would notice if we started splicing it from the cable lines running up the telephone pole. Maybe if we could dig under and splice into it as it is coming into our neighbor's house. So he called up his old friend, or maybe not friend, but his old acquaintance, Mole Man. And he had him tuddle under the house, and uh, he's like, Steve, we're going to have a guest over. I know you and Mole Man haven't always gotten along that great in the past, but I also know that we're both pretty excited about watching the upcoming Larry Holmes fight on March 31st. (laughs) So, uh... Maybe you could uh, be nice to him and he'll hook us up with cable and then we can watch that together. Steve was like, all right, fine. So Mole Man hooks him up with cable. I comes over for dinner. And because Wong has been busy setting that up, Steve said that he would be all right with cooking that night, which was a surprise. But Wong figures, well, I mean, he's probably by cooking. He just means he'll summon a banquet from another place. We've seen him do that before. So, yeah, that'll be fine. But Steve decided he really wanted to make his guest at home. And so he sorcerously summoned a sumptuous meal for himself and Wong. And then for Mole Man, he just brought him a big bowl of grubs and worms. Because he knew that that's what moles eat. And that is what moles eat. It's not what Mole Man eats, though. And so Mm. Mole Man was kind of off put by that. But he's like, you know what? I This is fine. And Wong offered to share part of his banquet with him. Things were working out okay. And uh, Mole Man was like, yeah, maybe I could uh, come over and watch the fight in a few days. And uh, they said, yeah, that sounds fine. Mole Man got very excited about this. He's like, oh, I'm really excited about that. I, I, uh, I hear the U.S. has a great boxing team this year, too. I'm really excited to see what they'll do in the Olympics. And Wong pointed out that the U.S. boxing team wouldn't be participating in the Olympics that year. They were boycotting it because of a problem they were having with Russia. And Mole Man got super pissed off. And he's like, You're, who is behind this? And Steve's like, oh, it's our leaders in Washington. 
And so Mole Man got very upset. He's like, then I will destroy this Washington. That is why on March 27th, Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington <laughs> State. See, Mole Man got confused, understandably so. A lot of people do. And I guess he toned it down because he didn't really destroy it, but he certainly inconvenienced it. And uh, yeah, Mount St. Helens, the volcano exploded, and that was due to Mole Man, which was due to Stephen Wong, which was due to Wong wanting to watch cable. Damn. Yep. And that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing in March of 1980. Just trying to watch the Larry Holmes, Leroy Jones fight. And instead we got an eruption. Mm-hmm. Indeed we did. Which I read about in Ranger Rick magazine. Like, I think for the 10-year anniversary of it when I was a kid. So, mm. there's that. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this comic. You're quite welcome. We'll be back next week to talk some new Teen Titans. I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by contacting us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in all of the internets and their social medias and whatnot on your Twitter, Tumblr, etc. Just type in Titan Up the Defense, and if you spell it T-I-T-A-N, there is a pretty good chance you'll find us somewhere. Just uh, see what the fisherman brings in that day. Probably some dumb opinions I have. Maybe if you're lucky, a dumb joke. I think we're approaching the anniversary of me making my hangings with Mystic Cooper joke. So maybe if you're real lucky, you'll stumble across me reposting that until it finally wins me the Mark Twain Award, as I so richly deserve. And yeah, if you can't find us in any of the social medias, well, there's another place you can look. Why not look deep inside your heart? Because guess what? We'll be there. We've always been there. I keep running out of things to do in people's heart. Well, just be there. Yeah. You don't always have to be doing stuff. I guess that's true. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's a nice time. There's also a bunch of video reviews of classic comics and some of newer comics, too, that I've made that are posted up there. And there's some other podcasts and just general bonus material. There's a lot of it up there. And the content on our Patreon page is exclusively available to our donors. So uh, if you kick us down a few bucks, then you can get all that entertainment. But more importantly, from my perspective at least, it's a nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we do on the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you for that. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary manner, uh, you can do that by leaving us a review in a place, or telling a friend, or an enemy, or an acquaintance, or somebody that you think might be a friend, or maybe more than a friend but you're not sure yet. Or somebody you'd like to be more than a friend. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Nothing helps seal the deal like a podcast recommendation. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
whisper into their ear the sweet nothing. Tighten up the defense. Catch the wave of the future and hang ten on it. Cowabunga. It works, I heard. Yeah, oh, totally. Mm. Uh, I'm a happily married man, so I, I, uh, I, I haven't had the opportunity to, to try that out. But from what I've heard, oh boy. Can always just see how Lisa reacts? I'd be curious. <laughs> I would be worried that then we would have to get double married. And I don't know how that works legally, if that would be technically... Uh, if then we wouldn't be married anymore because we were so married that it continues out to the other side like a pendulum, you know? Oh, no, no. People do that. They uh, renew their vows. Oh! I thought they were, uh, you know, two rights make a wrong. No, it's not. Now they weren't married anymore. Like two negative numbers. Yeah. But if you add two negative numbers, then what, Corey? Ah. Yes. Nobody knows for sure, but uh, hey, I I think That's... you might end up in a time cop situation in that uh, in that in that scenario. I said that's just for the Patreon donors to get the <laughs> big answers like that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, we have a whole series on theoretical mathematics, like <laughs> like addition, <laughs> <laughs> negative numbers. Yeah, what happens. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure. Curious. Intrigued. Hmm. Yeah. Or you could leave us a review on whatever uh podcast listening app you're using right now to listen to the show. Just uh, you know, hack it open and say review now, computer. And then when it says what would you like to review, then you say uh Titan up the defense. And it'll say playing Titan up by Archie Bell and the Drells. And you'll say, no, 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 no. The podcast, Titan, T-I-T-A-N, up the defense. And it'll say, like, I'm not sure what you're trying to say. And then you'll just have to type it in yourself. And I'm sorry, I know that's a pain in the butt. But uh, once it's in there, then uh, just start leaving us a review. And don't stop till we're thoroughly reviewed with all the stars it'll let you. It'll tell you you can only leave five stars, but don't you listen. You can write your own code and add an extra star or two that'll really turn some heads mm -hmm. thanks thank you so we'll be back soon and until then try not to get any crump in your badoom doom <laughs> or you'll be a real underpants monster <laughs> oh my god okay yep bye bye Doom doom. That is a fun word.